Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Hashtag Authentic. We are in season two. Who would have thought way back in January when I started this podcast, just dipping my toes really in to see if I liked it, if anyone else liked it, that we would get to this point. Season one has had the most tremendous reception and I am so, so thankful to all of you who listen and who comment and who get in touch to let me know what the podcast means to you. I kind of expected, I think, podcasting to feel a little bit isolating because it's this thing that I put out, you know, it's a conversation quite often, but it's something I put out into the world. And unlike things like Instagram or blogging, there's not really a system set up where you can reply and have that two-way conversation, which is what I love. But actually, it's turned out that podcasting is probably the most two-way thing in everything I do and everyone is amazing about letting me know how they listen to it and where they listen to it and how they action the things that they hear in the show and that means so much to me so a huge huge thank you. So I've taken the time over the summer to get ahead with things for the podcast. Towards the end of season one I really felt like I was running to keep up just to make sure I was getting it out each week to you guys. So I've got a little bit of a head start on season two. I have the most amazing guests lined up. I'm really genuinely excited to talk to them and to share their stories with you and I know it's going to be full of aha moments and brilliant learning because these conversations are changing my day so hopefully it will do the same for you and I've also got some episodes lined up where it's just me talking kind of in-depth features about topics or problems that you guys have let me know you struggle with or would like to know more about so that we can get really in-depth and practical on strategies and things like that. So should we get started? My guest for this first episode is Tara Moore. She is a columnist, a coach, a writer, a speaker. All of her work comes together to help women fulfill their creative ambitions. Her book, Playing Big, was first recommended to me by Jen Carrington, who you might remember from an earlier episode. She's a creative coach in the UK. And I was just so inspired by this book, by its wisdom, by her wit, by all of the science-backed common sense and strategy that she had crammed in between those two cover pages that I immediately knew you all needed to hear from her as well and short of me just reading out her book on air that the best thing I could do was get her on the podcast. We managed to find time between our children and our jobs and our different time zones to hop on Skype and have a really great conversation about Tara's work. Let's have a listen. Hello Tara. Hi there. Welcome to Hashtag Authentic and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So for anyone who hasn't come across your work before, can you give us a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. Well, maybe it's easier to start for me, at least it is easier to start with what I'm passionate about and what I care about. Yes. Uh, and, And what I really care about is helping us create a more humane, sane, loving world. And I believe that one of the big ways we need to change in order to have that happen is to help women bring forward their voices and have women and men in our culture and our institutions holding power equally. So the work that I do is teaching and writing and coaching all around around that, around helping women really get their voices out into the world and have the impact they want to have. Well, that's what I'm up to in my work and in my heart. That is a wonderful mission to be on. I first came across your work via your book. Do you want to have a little talk about that? Sure. So I wrote a book called Playing Big, and the subtitle is Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead. 
And one thing that I, I really love about this book is that everything that's in it is tried and true and proven and comes out of work that I was doing in my coaching practice with women in small groups in courses with women. So I did that work for years and then really was studying what are the tools, what are the ideas that actually help women get unstuck and that are not just helping one of my clients, but not the others, but like what's consistently really transformative for the whole range of diverse women that I was working with and everything that kind of made it through that filter became part of the playing big course that I still teach and that I taught online for many years and then became part of the playing big book. So it's really this kind of arc of if you feel like you're playing small. And interestingly, you know, a lot of us have some sort of sinking, subtle awareness that we're playing small, even Mm -hmm. if we don't know exactly what we mean by that, right? Like, or we're not sure even what our playing big would look like. Sometimes we know, but sometimes we don't. But we kind of know I'm hiding, I'm holding back, I'm not using my gifts, I'm not really trusting my own ideas. And in fact, when I had just started blogging years before I, you know, called anything playing big, didn't have a course called playing big, didn't have a book called playing big, but I had, was growing my blog audience. This is like around 2008, 2009, 2000. Yeah. In that period. And I was curious about who was my audience. And, you know, I know you have a lot of entrepreneurs listening. And so a wonderful thing we can always do is go survey our audience or go interview them and find out what's on their mind. So I did that. And I did this survey. And part of the survey was asking the women who were reading my blog, what is the biggest challenge in your life? Because of course, I wanted to know, you know, what should I be writing about more? What, how can I be responsive to them? And it was a multiple choice question. And on the list of answers was everything that we typically think of as being challenging for contemporary women. So work family balance issues, for sure, you know, relationship challenges, body image issues, financial stress, health stuff, right? All of that was on the list. And when when I was writing the survey, I looked at that list and then I kind of thought, wait, you know, that thing that I keep seeing in my coaching practice, that thing that I'm up against myself that I'm struggling with, it's nowhere on this list. And how do I get it on this list? And so I just kind of added and on a whim, like I'm playing small as, as another challenge. And the responses came back. And that was what the most women said was the top challenge in their life. Oh, wow. That's a goosebump moment. It was a goosebump moment. And I looked at that and I thought, what? You know, it's surely, isn't it work family balance? Like every magazine article is telling us it's work family balance, right? Like that's what the culture's like. But at least for this audience, for this group of women, no, you know, the challenge was something that they could name that way. And I at the time was coming out of my own playing small of, you know, I had been sort of relatively traumatized by education where, you know, everybody was ranked and nothing you ever did was good enough. And you you had to regurgitate other people's ideas instead of trusting your own. And 90% of the professors were men and, you know, all that stuff. So I was coming out of that still and feeling very scared and kind of had a sense of what I wanted to do, but had so much self doubt. So I knew, you know, I was really facing that problem too. And and that was one of the reasons I was so interested in it. And so then that really became the focus of my work with people. What is this playing small we're talking about? And and what does it mean 
to us to play big. One thing I loved about the book that you've kind of explained, I suppose, there is is how meaty it really felt. Like everything in it was an aha moment one after the other, which is unusual, I think, for the genre of kind of enlightening self-help books. Quite often you kind of have to cherry pick the bits that are relevant to your own life. But I wonder, like, your coaching business is obviously you mainly work with women, but from what you know, is this an issue that women suffer with more than men? It's a great question, and it's it's a pretty complex one because, of course, there's a lot of different pieces to what we talk about in the book. And I sort of think of it as there's two layers here. So there's a universal layer where for all human beings, I think part of our process of adulthood, you know, if we step up to the challenge of adulthood, part of that process for all of us is going to be doing the scary thing of figuring out what our individual path is and what our callings are. And we might have to care less about what family and friends think to pursue those callings. And we might have to do something that nobody else understands. And we have to do things that feel vulnerable and scary. Mm -hmm. So there's a universal level for sure to this kind of human journey of stepping into playing bigger. And my definition, as you read in the book, is my definition of playing big is it's being more loyal to your dreams than to your fears. So I think men and women, right, we're all in that tug of war between our dreams and our fears, and we get to make choices around that. So that's the universal level. And I have lots of men who read the book and email us about the book or women who give it to, you know, partners or sons. My husband is listening to the audiobook at the moment. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, so they get a lot out of it. And, you know, I love one day we got like a picture <laughs> to the through, through the contact form on the website of like a very handsome man reading the book. <laughs> on the subway <laughs> somebody else who follows me and shopping across the subway amazing and it in. so yes that's the universal piece but then I would say there is this second layer which is the stuff that resonates in a particular way for women and you know we're women and men are still very much socialized differently mm. we get very different role models in our culture right all of that so the things that you know for women the how, how, what do I do when what I want is in conflict with what seems like it's gonna, you know, please others. And I've been socialized to be relationship oriented and to always be nice and to maybe to put others needs first, or how do I walk this fine line between having a voice, but not being called too aggressive and bitchy, Mm -hmm. like men don't deal with that issue at all. How do I step into having financial power? If no woman behind me in the line of my family has ever had that, and I've never seen that. And maybe I even got the message that's going to be threatening and, and be in conflict with, you know, finding a great partner, right? I could go on and on body image stuff, right? There's a whole set of things that, you know, fall along a gender line and manifest in a particular way. And we do know from the research on this, um, that women and men don't necessarily experience different amounts of insecurity or self-doubt in a general sense. In other words, if you do a study and you assign women and men to a very gender neutral task, like, for example, you know, maybe reading a paragraph aloud or something like that. And then you measure their level of self doubt or how well they estimate they'll do, you won't see too much of a gender difference. 
But if you assign a task that has a gendered feeling in terms of how we would view it in our culture. So if it's, for example, a negotiation Mm -hmm. challenge, if it's a math problem, if it's a science problem, if it's a financial investment decision, all of those things we associate with masculinity. And the result of that is that the woman will in those situations feel a lot more self-doubt. Leadership is also one of those. So anything that conjures up a sense of leadership for us, whether that's leading a tribe online or leading an organization, women are going to tend to feel, oh, that's kind of not for me, or I'm not good at that kind of thing. And that's a big, big, big problem. It's huge. One of the things that I hear an awful lot from people I work with is this this fear of not being liked, of, of kind of, I guess it's that sticking your head up and making yourself different because we're all looking for connection and we're all looking to fit in with the right people for us. What do you say to women who are frightened that it's going to make them unlikable? Yeah, well, you know, when I started teaching the Playing Big course, we would we'd start, we'd do a module on the inner critic and then we would do a module on something I call the inner mentor, which I'm sure we'll talk about later today. And we'd do a module on fear and then we would get to this fourth module that I call unhooking from praise and criticism. So that's like, how do I live my life in such a way that I am not constantly getting hooked by and caught up in and going on an emotional roller coaster because of what other people think. And the internet is a huge deliverer of that, right? You can get thousands of people's opinions just without even getting out of bed. Exactly. So as part of the the work in that session of the course, I would sometimes sort of ask women, okay, well, let's say this, the criticism that you're fearing, you know, comes your way, or let's say that person um, really, you know, doesn't like what you have to say, or doesn't like you and comes at you, you know, then what? And we would sort of start thinking through it and talking through it. And what I noticed is that when we were doing that kind of imagining, the women on the other end of the line would sound like, their lives were being threatened. Like they would be, when they actually got in touch with like, okay, let's imagine that criticism really comes. Or let's imagine, you know, that mentor that you so admire really like comes back at you with something very harsh or hurtful. And people would be like trembling and really feeling that to the core. And the vibe I would get through the phone is like, they feel like their life is being threatened. Why do they feel like their life is being threatened? And at the same time, I could completely relate. Like, (laughs) Yes, that also feels totally petrifying to me. And why is this so petrifying, right? This is just another person in their opinion. And so I thought about that for a long time. And one day when I was walking and thinking about it, I had a kind of light bulb moment of realizing that for so much of our human history, women didn't have resources or power at their disposal in their toolkit to help them survive. So if you think back even just, you know, a, a few hundred years ago, how did women survive? Okay, they, they couldn't vote, they didn't have any political power to exercise their will, they couldn't own financial property. So if they were in a dangerous situation, they couldn't get out and pay for their next meal, they couldn't get out with their kids and get an apartment, they weren't surviving through their physical might, because right? In general, they were going to be smaller and weaker than than the other sex. They weren't doing too much kickboxing classes, which they probably weren't a few hundred <laughs> years ago, right? So, so how did we actually survive? We survived through likability, influence through relationships, yes. right? How, how we adapted 
to whatever the people with more power and the structures with power were demanding that we adapt to. Which is where those amazing empathy skills come in and that ability to kind of almost psychically read what everyone is feeling just from the way they're sitting. Right. We know like the science shows women can read nonverbal cues better, right? We're, we're right. We're always scanning because we had to. That's such a great point, right? We learned that as a survival mechanism. So that means, you know, here we are now in 2017 and yeah, at a rational level, I can say, I'm going to put out some artwork that's controversial, or I'm going to go against what my mentors, you know, advise me to do, or I'm going to do something that's going to make my parents just like, you know, fall out of their chairs, the rational level that might be okay with us. But at a cellular level, that is doing something that would have for most of our history, completely endangered our, our safety and survival and, and often did, you know, and even I was actually just talking to someone who she works in the developing world and she really loved playing big and was talking about bringing it to very, very patriarchal cultures in the developing world. And I said, you know, well, how do you do that and have it be safe? Because it's not always safe. And she said, that's true. And she, she told a story that I didn't know about after the one of the big UN women's conferences, there had been a delegate from a very, very patriarchal tribal culture who was there and got so empowered and inspired. And she came home and challenged her husband and her husband murdered her. So this has, you know, that speaking up and speaking out is newly safe for some women in some parts of the world. And so I think, you know, that's a, it's a long answer to your question, but I do think it can be really helpful to, to go to the root of it in the way we just did, because we need to have compassion for ourselves when we're feeling really, really scared about people not liking what we're going to do or about that criticism. We need to understand the why. And when we can sort of speak the why and process the why consciously instead of it running us unconsciously, then I think we can sort of make the distinction and say, that was then, this is now, it is scary, but it's okay. It is fundamentally safe and we can survive this. And like, it's okay to just really try and reassure and hush and love that scared part of ourselves, just like we would a very scared child, knowing there's a reason for that fear. A genetic reason almost, kind of yeah, down yeah. to that base level. I'm guessing, I mean, is this how it works, that if after a, a series of generations of women who were taking those steps and are taking those leaps and putting themselves in, in those positions, that then starts to change for, for women who are born? I think so. I mean, you know, the whole study of like epigenetics and how nurture and nature affect each other. That's such a new field, but that certainly would, you know, I think stands to reason. Yes. And it's of course not just it's genetic, but it's also the cultural transmission, you know, of those old fears and stories. They might not be current, but that doesn't mean they're still being handed down within families as part of a psychological reality, even if it's no longer a legal reality. Absolutely. I mean, I knew my great grandmother and she was born in the Victorian era. So, you know, it's recent history, really, isn't it? It's kind of almost within memory for most families, at least. Exactly. 
in case anybody thinks we're talking total woo with the genetic element, the story that a friend of mine told me about butterflies who they were taken as eggs from wherever they were laid and then taken into captivity very far away and hatched, grown to caterpillars and then emerged as butterflies. And the butterflies all migrated back to the exact place where mm. the eggs were taken from. On that front, like if anyone is curious about, you know, things like that, the whole, all this, now there's a lot of research around the gender differences in the fear response. And researchers are starting to recognize that we've always thought fight or flight was the was the universal human response. And then it turns out like so many things that primarily male animals were being studied to draw a universal conclusion. And there's these other fear responses, including one that seems to be much more prominent in female mice and rats that's called tend and befriend where instead of going into fight or flight as a fear response, the response is to tend to the young and to sort of band up with the social group. That's the tend and befriend. And so that's, you know, it's another example of how roles, according to gender, shape what then over time becomes an instinctual biological response. It's fascinating. We could fill a whole podcast just talking about that, I suspect. (laughs) So one thing that kind of comes up for me when I think about this issue of likability and kind of trying to befriend and trying to stay a part of the community is something you talk about in the book about kind of mitigating language we often as women use kind of almost subconsciously to soften our points or to make it feel a little bit safer to express our opinions I'm very guilty I've noticed I mean recording yourself is like nothing else for picking up on your verbal tics I say I think at the start of so many things and I actually asked on Twitter at one point and said like I'm trying not to say I think and it got a huge response from other women saying I'm struggling with this as well but then Mm. quite a few women came back and said yeah you could say instead like I guess or you could say and kind of (laughs) offered me just other wrong direction (laughs) yeah but it is so hard to stop yeah. And some people might be wondering as they're listening, why are we why are we not trying to say I think? So the deal here is that there are these language patterns that women use, and you've probably heard both me and Sarah use them in this call because pretty much, you know, if you're an English speaking woman, you've got these patterns. If you speak a different language primarily, there are there are other ones and some of these that are likely showing up along gender lines. Um, in your speech. And and they tend to be ways of speaking or writing that decrease the level of authority that we convey that cause us to come across as less confident, more tentative. So in English, some of them are, for example, using the word just or actually a lot. So I just I just think that I actually have a question. I actually disagree. So just is like it kind of shrinks what you say. I just think it's like I'm just tiptoeing by with this little thought or <laughs> I'm justifying what I say. Like just can also have that connotation actually, of course, makes it sound like it's something surprising. So I actually disagree. Even surprising to yourself. Right. (laughs) Right. I actually have a question I want to ask. Other ones we use are phrases like, well, I'm not an expert, but da 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 da. Or I know you've been probably thinking about this longer than I have. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. But so ways of discounting our ideas before we share them. Another one that a lot of women use is, did that make sense? Or does that make sense? Right. So after you say something, you're sort of 
implying that maybe that was crazy. Maybe that was in, incoherent. So there's there's a few things to say about these and, and similar patterns in our language. One, sometimes people say to me, well, Batara, men use those too. Men use some of them too, but the research is pretty clear that women use them frequently. Low status people in any society use them more frequently. Mm-hmm. Or even if you do a simulation in the lab and you know give people roles where one person is the president and one person is the junior person, you'll immediately see the lower status people start to use these terms more frequently. And also when white men or, you know, and even more so white men use these kinds of qualifiers in their speech, they are interpreted a bit differently. And everybody can sort of imagine that in a situation. Now, if you imagine someone at a meeting, if if the male white male CEO of a company who's in his 60s says, I'm thinking off the top of my head here, but I'm wondering about this idea. What do all of you think, right? People will perceive him as, oh, it's so nice. He opens up these (laughs) fluid, you know, casual conversations. He's humble, like because he acknowledges. But every time the junior woman in the room makes a point, she says, I'm just thinking off the top of my head that's going to come back to hurt her in a different way. And that's not, that's not fair, right? But that's stereotyping and bias. And so it is read differently. And for women, it does tend to impact how authoritatively we come across, how confident and competent we're perceived as being. So it's a good idea to let them go. The problem that we then run into is that as you're pointing out, Sarah, we want to be relationship oriented in our speech and we want to sound nice and we want to sound humble and we don't want to be like the arrogant blowhard that we don't want to be like, you know? So that's where things get, need to get a little more nuanced. And, and so in, in playing big, the model that we talk about is communicating both warmth and competent. Because what people are really saying when they're like, but if I drop the just and the actually, and the, does that make sense? Like, aren't I going to sound not nice, you know, they're saying, how, how else do I communicate warmth? How else do I communicate that I don't think I'm the only one in the room that knows something? And so what we want to do is find the positive ways to communicate that instead of these self-diminishing ways. So you can really warmly say, you know, at the end of an email, I, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this. I know we're going to have, you know, a great exchange when we next talk about it. That's another way to convey I'm interested in what you think instead of, you know, but those are just my thoughts. I'm sure you know what right or but did that make sense? So you can always do it in a non-self-diminishing way and that's what we want to move towards. I think it affects the way we th- I just did it, I think. But I believe that it does affect the way we think about ourselves as much as the way other people think about ourselves. Because if we're constantly framing our opinions in this sort of tentative, they can't quite be trusted mindset, it sort of seeps in. Yes, yes. And that's, it's, that's another, I think, I totally agree. It's a, and I think it's a really important piece of if we're walking around always expressing ourselves that way, we also start to think that way. Our thinking starts to sound that way in our head and we're teaching ourselves something with the language we use. And, you know, sometimes it's fine to use, I think, and, you know, especially like in a conversation like this, and if you're expressing an opinion, none of these are, there's a rule that you should never use them. But if you do find every time you're in a professional setting wanting to 
share an insight, a point of view, you are, you're shrinking it by saying, well, I think this instead of sometimes just stating what there is to be stated and people will understand you think it because it's coming from you. You know, that's, we don't want these things to become a default that we use completely unintentionally because it's, it's just more comfortable. Right. And that was why when I listened back to the podcast, I realized I was saying it so much that it had become something, not just that I used as much as any other language, but something that was really like, it was almost like an opener for every sentence right. for me. Often it, it was, I didn't think it, I knew it. It was a fact that I was just sharing. So mm, yeah, yeah. Actually, and my degree prior to what I do now, kind of in my past life was in linguistics. So this was the stuff I was super nerdy about all the sociolinguistics, all the gender differences and the way that we use language. So it was really fascinating mm-hmm. for me to reflect on that and really think about kind of the things I was doing without noticing myself because it all slips by you so easily. Yeah, it really is unconscious. And that's why I recommend for people who do want to change their speech in the ways that we're talking about, pick one habit at a time. Don't try and change them all at once. So you just focus on one because it's habit change. So it's hard to do seven things at once. And you can do it with a friend so they can kind of call you out if if there's a friend or coworker that you're around a lot that hears you using the terms that can be fun and make it sort of lighthearted to remind each other. Um, And it also can be useful, as you're saying, Sarah, to have a recording of yourself just to hear how things are coming across and landing. Yeah. You share a list for when people are communicating via email. So lots of people listening, a lot of their professional communication is going to be things that they do online. And I've found this a lot easier to practice in written communication, because you can read back and take out the things that you perhaps didn't need to include. Exactly. You can edit and it, it's a good way of teaching yourself what you want to edit out because you can look back and you have time. And then that becomes a bit more natural to do in speech. And, and it's also just very important to do an email. And I don't know what you found as you do this, but what we hear from a lot of women is one, my emails got so much shorter because I stopped qualifying everything. And then two, that people share that they get much quicker responses because they're, they're being more clear about their requests. They're not being apologetic. And so that's very valuable, whether you're an entrepreneur, but especially we hear from, you know, when people work inside large organizations and maybe they're more junior and they're female and they just don't hear back from people if they communicate in that qualifying way. And then when they stop, they start getting people's attention. So it's always exciting to hear from people about that. I shared something on Twitter, actually, not very long ago, what you were saying earlier about having an online audience and you're able to kind of gauge feedback really quickly. And I shared just some quippy comment about how it takes me like 30 seconds to write an email and it can then take me 25 minutes to make it sound warm and likable and friendly. (laughs) And so my email takes me like half an hour and it got so many retweets, which again, like you think, okay, this is actually something that we're all struggling with. Then it really isn't just me who's falling into that trap. So actually speeding that whole process up has been it's given me a lot of my time back. That's so, that's just like my heart sinks when I hear that because I think about, to me, that's just a perfect articulation of like the burden of being socialized as a girl, right? Yeah. And how we're all carrying around this thing of I somehow have to get stuff done in the world while seeming likable at every single moment. And and that that takes seven times as much as doing the thing itself, right? And if you think of what we could all be doing and creating and just how much freer we'd feel if we got back that time, uh, yeah, pretty amazing. 
it's exhausting as well <laughs> the mm-hmm. energy that goes into it I think possibly because I'm British as well like we are we worry about being polite anyway so maybe it's even compounded so actually letting it go and then I am working on letting all of that likability factor kind of be freer in my personal life it does give you back a bit more energy because you're not scanning everybody in the room for their reaction quite so intently yeah. as well in your mind what does a world where there are more women playing big look like it's mm, a great question I believe very strongly that you know, only each woman can define for herself what playing big looks like for her and it's been so fabulous and fascinating over the years of teaching the playing big course to see you know, for one woman playing big will be like she went for tenure in a more confident, bold way than she otherwise would have. And she got tenure and, you know, she's now like very much in an institution in a powerful role. And then for the next woman where we hear from with her her story, it might be, you know, I left academia because I realized that if I was truly playing big, that was not my path. And what I really wanted to do was this more, you know, heart-based creative work. So sometimes it is playing big within the systems and institutions of our world with a bigger title or a bigger role or more power. Sometimes it's challenging the status quo in those institutions. Sometimes it is leaving them and doing the thing that is considered less prestigious in the world and that, you know, our family doesn't understand at all, but, but that woman knows that's playing big for her. So only the individual can know on the inside, like what really is that move for them? And of course, in the book, we talk a lot about callings and your inner mentor and tools that help you discern what that is for you. But I will say that I also know that when more women step into playing big, what we get are more people focused on service and being of service to others, doing things that have meaning and that don't just play into somebody's bottom line. We get a more relational focus because of, you know, the things we've talked about today, of like how women are socialized and how we've evolved the strength in that is that we care a lot about human beings and we understand a lot about how to care for human beings. And so when women step into playing bigger, that becomes more prominent, you know, in their companies, in their work and what is getting created in the world. And the other thing, which I'm guessing is really relevant to your audience and maybe is more controversial even to link this to gender, but I, I see that we get a lot more creativity and beauty. And of course I don't mean physical beauty as defined by Vogue magazine, but I think that, that beauty and creativity and art and, and making our lives beautiful and living with, you know, everyday objects that were designed with care and grace and taking in beauty. Like to me, that is an incredibly central part of what it means to be human. And it is also a very spiritual thing. And women seem to be particularly in our culture right now, you know, women seem to be the keepers of that and the sort of revivers of that in a way that I find very interesting. And I don't know if it's because, you know, we've been the artisans in many communities for a long time, or because we have more cultural permission to go be creative, because we're not supposed to be the big, tough, you know, breadwinners. I don't know what it is. But I don't think it's a small thing that women are filling up Pinterest and Instagram and 
that all of us have so readily embraced that being part of our lives and that we all tend to feel so much better when we get to do something creative. That's, you know, that's all really significant. So, and I see that a lot of women, when they discover that that's part of their calling and they're playing big, they grapple with a lot of guilt and shame and judgment of themselves around that. Like, is that frivolous? That's not feeding the starving children. And, you know, I used to run a think tank or I used to be a scientist or I used to be And now I just want to make my ceramics. And and isn't that, you know, shallow or selfish or kind of stupid or whatever? And I just think those judgments in themselves, in my opinion, completely come from a patriarchal worldview. And, you know, I could just go on about why I think beauty and art and creativity are so important and sacred. But those are some of the things I see when women are playing bigger. That is a really interesting point. It's it's not kind of valued by our culture. But even as I say that, I think that's not true because we do value it. But it's sort of denigrated even to like the extent where caring about how your interiors look is seen as sort of a little bit superficial and a little bit shallow, particularly I think in in British culture, at least, I don't know what it's like in the States. Um, So people do, but kind of if you become too concerned about your interiors, people will think that kind of you've not got enough in your life. But then I think, well, actually, the space that you're in has so much influence over the mood you wake up in and how you spend your day and can the work you produce and everything else because it's the thing that you bounce off in your kind of day to day absolutely absolutely and yeah I think we do devalue it I think individuals value it and then you know also we kind of judge the extent to which we value it but just as an example we find a lot of things to have money for right in our public budgets but we don't have money to like make the subway station at all aesthetically pleasing, Mm. because that wouldn't be considered important, right? Or to make a public school, you know, have some planted flowers, right? in it, like, that would be considered a frivolous extra. And it's kind of seen as this recreational thing, right? It gets it gets some magazines, but doesn't really get an important section of a newspaper, right? So and actually, I mean, when I visit the UK, it's was one of the places where I at least the performing arts, I think there are still valued in a way that we never really had in the States. So that's always really lovely to see. But yeah, and it's quite interesting to think about the why and, you know, why is it, why is it devalued in our culture? And I think it, it partly does have to do with, you know, if you associate the home and interiors and beauty and fashion with women, then you also have to devalue all of that in a patriarchal culture. It makes sense. Yes. And, and I would also wonder if it's partly that people like their people's feelings and our emotional lives are, they stay alive and they stay very sort of vibrant through art and our relationship to creativity. So if you want to shut that down in a culture, and if you want to shut that down in the men of a culture, you kind of have to keep art and creativity to the periphery. Right. It's a a really good control tactic, actually, when you put it in those terms. Yes. Yeah. One comparison I often draw when I talk about this with friends is sport. So sport on the news every day. I I imagine (laughs) it's the same. It gets a dedicated section at the end of every news show, a dedicated section in every newspaper, radio news, whatever else. It's always the sport at the end. And imagine if they used that section for something else. Imagine if they used that for arts and they just had a section at the end of every news broadcast where they talked about 
new books that were coming out and a new exhibition and a new play and everything else like who decided that it had to be sport and why does sport have more intrinsic value because it's just all recreational right it's all about having a nice time and feeling good I love that. That's a perfect example. Yeah. But it's so alien to people when I say, like, if I say, why do we have to have sport? There's there's always a few people who immediately I can see them kind of recoil in horror at the suggestion that we shouldn't. Yeah. And part of that is also that, you know, there's winners and losers in sports, which I I just reread a great book that I would recommend to everyone called The Chalice and the Blade. Have you read it? I haven't, no. It's from the, it's like was published in the mid 80s. The author's name is Rianne Eisler. And her thesis is that there's sort of in society is a continuum between the dominator model of societies and a partnership model of societies. And the dominator model would be like, is a very patriarchal model and kind of what we tend to be in where everything is in hierarchy and ranking and you know, we organize people and how we think about things in hierarchical terms. So I'm just being reminded of that as we're talking about sports, because I think part of the reason like sports gets so much more celebrated and legitimized in our culture is because there is this competitive winner loser piece that just fits into our cultural model better than, you know, this kind of open ended flat thing that you can have with having a huge diversity of artists. When no one's in competition and everybody's mm-hmm. supporting one another. Mm-hmm. Right, where's the fun in that for the news? I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Tara, do we have time to talk about um, Inner Mentors before you go? I feel like I could just talk to you all day. Yeah, yeah, no, I would love to talk about Inner Mentor because that's so important. Um, well, first I want to ask you about yours and and how about your relationship to Inner Mentor. So I was going to ask you that. Can you tell about like inside of people's minds by, by their revealing Inner Mentors? What's this going to say <laughs> about me when I tell you mine? Mine's a really clear, so I should, I should explain. I mean, you can probably explain it far better than I can, but it's an exercise that Tara shares in the book. Yeah, I'm going to let you explain it because I want to do it justice. So this is a, a really important part of the playing big process is getting in touch with your inner mentor. And what that means is your inner mentor is a vision of yourself, a sense of you 20 or 30 years in the future. But before you start to conjure that up as you're listening, don't conjure it up. Because actually, when you ask people, you know, oh, who do you hope to be 20 or 30 years out? you get people's worries about their retirement savings and where will their business be? And will I still be with my partner? Will I have found a partner? And will I, you know, be still in good shape physically or not? All that like very conscious mind ego stuff. When we do the inner mentor exercise that's in playing big, and actually we can, Sarah, share a link to it for your listeners too, if they just go straight to the audio you really kind of get out of that everyday conscious mind thinking and to a more intuitive, mysterious place. And it is quite amazing what happens for people when they do the visualizations about 15, 20 minutes long. So this vision of yourself that you come upon through that visualization is usually a surprising one to people. It's not what they would have expected, very moving often. And it's kind of an older version of yourself, but it's kind of your essential self or your authentic self. It's kind of your crone sort of elder self. And then you can start to relate to that figure like a mentor. So instead of having to turn outward and look for the perfect mentor or the perfect advice, you can check in with that 
older self in your mind and can say, okay, what would she say about that? Or how would she approach this? And it really is, I just watched it like this tool be miraculous for people time and time and time and again. And it was for me in my own life when I first discovered mine. It's an exercise that comes from the Coaches Training Institute where I did my training and then I've sort of adapted what they did with it. Yeah, so that's what it is. And and so how was your experience with it? I think for me, it may be the first kind voice I've kind of put into my head. Mm-hmm. And I wonder yeah. if that's true for a lot of the women you work with, that kind of the narrative, the people that kind of give us feedback within our own mind tend to be quite critical voices that we've picked up along the way, either real people or not, but kind of that inner critic sense. So mine is, she still lives in this house that we have now, which I was surprised at because I always think that we're going to move. And she's incredibly placid and slow and deliberate and calm, which is different to how I live my day to day. One thing that really struck me is she always has her hair up very neatly, but just up and out the way. And I always like, I guess it's a, it's a self-image thing. I, I tend to think I need to have my hair down all the time. So that kind of really appealed to me. I was really impressed that she always had her hair up, like she'd stopped caring. I'd stopped caring about that. Mm. And it's just a, a lovely thing to, because whenever I check in with her on things that I'm kind of feeling really anxious about, like nine times out of 10, she is like, this this isn't something we need to be worrying about like where is this in the big picture and and that perspective is something that I've never been able to give myself before yeah and what's so powerful about that too is when she says it right when she says you know this is not this not the big stuff you can feel the truth of that right that's it's something about when each person discovers their own inner mentor The guidance, even if it's super simple, and if someone else said it to you, you might be like, well, that's not helpful. You know, (laughs) like, obviously, it is stressing me out, because then it would just be words from another person. But it, she is, you know, she speaks the truth. And because it's coming from you, and it's such a felt sense, it actually can change how you're feeling about the thing, just by shifting into her perspective on it. It's yeah, it's like kind of tuning into some core beliefs that obviously they're mine obviously they're ours and we we hold them on some level and that's what you you say that it's the truth but it I haven't found another way to tap into those so this is my first experience of being oh yeah no I do believe that on some level so great and being able to take it forwards um I did have I think you talk about this in either in the meditation or in the book but my first experience of trying to find her was less positive well I had the same experience (laughs) the first time I did the exercise when I was in my coaching training it did not go well (laughs) and um, everyone else in my coaching class was like having epiphanies and I was just having this really tough time so I had to do it a second time so that's no big deal if anyone has that experience you know just try it again and in the book we also have some other suggestions if you feel really stuck with the vision visualization, there's kind of some other ways you can do it. But I encourage people to try the visualization first, even if you think you're already sure you're not a visualization person, or it can't work for you, because it, it usually does. And then it can be a really powerful resource for you. And I guess this kind of answers the the last question I was going to put to you, really, because one thing that I get asked a lot, or that kind of comes up in conversations I have with people a lot, or that comes up in my Facebook groups and things, is people saying, where do I find the courage? So I, I've figured out what I want to do. I think I know what direction I want to go in, but I just don't know where I find the courage. But maybe that's where the inner mentor comes in. Totally. Because again, you know, in our model of, you know, this sort of 
more tends to be a kind of more masculine, like, well, the way you would do something hard is by finding the courage and then like being your own hero and like climbing up that mountain, right. And pushing and being brave. Okay. Maybe, but maybe that's not going to work for all of us. (laughs) And, and what I love about the inner mentor is, yeah, it's once you have that, first of all, it's visual, it's felt, it's like, oh, that's who is in me that wants to come out. For me, when I first did the the inner mentor and got that, you know, positive view, got did it the second time and got that positive view, I had a job inside a big organization. I was, you know, wearing tweed suits every day. I was writing white papers. My home did not reflect my style. My life did not reflect my passions or my heart's desires. But once I got that inner mentor visualization and I was like, wait a second, there's this woman, she's a writer. And literally at the time it was like, she's a writer. That's weird. Like writing was that thing I did, you know, when I was 12, she, oh, but like, oh, I see her life is like all about creativity and spirituality. And, and it was sort of like, oh, that's who I am. Those are all the parts that have gotten buried along the way. And that's what it would look like to have them be out and have my life be organized around them. And then I remember for about a year, there was just this intense period of transition of, you know, how can I grow more into her? And so every decision I made was like, is that taking me more in the direction of her or further away from her? And the next piece of clothing I'm going to buy, it's going to be something that she would wear. You know, (laughs) it was like, I remember actually, I went from like, you know, my tweed, like my my khaki tweed blazer to like this lavender shimmery blouse thing that to me was, you know, okay, like we're going in this more expressive, creative, owning femininity. You know, there's just a number of things that encapsulate for me, but being pulled forward into something that you that's pulling you because it feels so real and powerful is really different than having to muster up the courage to like try and create something out of thin air. So yes, I completely agree. And it's a much, because the one thing I end up saying is you, it's already in you, the courage is already in you, but it's, I guess this is the way to find that courage and, and, and it's not necessarily about hitting yourself as hard as you can with the hammer every day and hoping that you eventually cough up the courage. Yes. Where can we find you? What's next for you? Have you got something big on the horizon? Well, this fall, we have the Playing Big Facilitators training, which is the program that I I added into my repertoire a couple years ago because we had so many coaches and therapists and people in mentoring roles and teaching roles that were using Playing Big in some way or wanted to use Playing Big in their work with others and, and with other women. So now we do a facilitator's training where people can learn to take women through this kind of process. So that's coming up in the fall and then continuing to teach the Playing Big course. I'm also going to be adding a course about spirituality in the coming year. So I'm really excited about that. And, and then I think maybe I'm going to ask you to help me with my Instagram. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's going to be one of my next projects too. <laughs> I would love to. And you have two small children as well. So you're balancing all of these things all at the same I time. Do. In fact, I was just writing a post. I feel like I sort of went and had a baby and then I woke up and Instagram had taken over the internet and now I <laughs> <laughs> catch up. Yes, I have a seven month old and a, and a three and a half year old at this today. That's their ages. So 
I'm also, you know, in that place of like, what really is appropriate for this phase? And what are things that I will look forward to doing in a few years? <laughs> yeah, that the, the carrot you dangle yourself to keep yourself going in the here and now. Yes, um, yeah. My husband has actually just finished his day job and he is now full time carer for our daughter so that I can work full time, which is huge because I've gone from being kind of permanently in a position where I thought I was going to be the lower bread winner. I was working for our health service to kind of transforming our whole family setup. But it's really it's really lovely to a to see him and her having that time together, but also to have a bit more time back to myself. Yeah, can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I would love to hear a whole, I would love to interview you about that process. Super interesting. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic for our relationship as well. So I will definitely keep people updated on how that, <laughs> how that goes and what happens along the way. Uh, Tara, where can people find everything you do online and find more of your work? Yeah, so the best place to go is taramore.com. And there's all kinds of free resources there. And you can sign up to be in touch with the continued writing I do on these topics at on Instagram, I'm at Tara Sophia Moore, and Moore is M O H R. And then, if you want to get the Playing Big book, anywhere that you like to get books, so Amazon. Sarah, I think you said you were listening to the audio book, which I yes. you know a lot of people really enjoy getting it that way. So that's there on Audible. I'll link to all of the places. Those are the spots. And we can also post a link to the email checklist that we were talking about too for how to edit an email. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I definitely think everybody listening will probably want to get their hands on that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. I could literally sit here and just pick your brain all day. This is one of my favorite topics. Oh, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. And best of luck with whatever happens next. Notes for this week's episode, including links to that email checklist and the visualization exercise that Tara talks about, are all at my site at meanola.co.uk forward slash podcast 23. As always, the episode is just the beginning. Tara and I would love to hear your reflections, your responses, and who you find when you are looking for your inner mentor. So you can contact us via Twitter or Instagram or wherever you're online, and I will put links to our social media in the notes as well. And finally, for anyone who would like to grab a space on my upcoming Instagram course, the class opens on Monday, that's next Monday, if you're listening to this as it goes out, Monday the 11th of September 2017. So if you're on my mailing list, you will get an early heads up about it before anyone else. And please just be aware that spots will sell out really, really quickly. It's usually just in a couple of hours. So be ready on the morning of the sale if you want to join us. And finally, if this episode has uplifted, inspired or educated you, I would love it if you could stop by the hashtag authentic page on iTunes and leave me a review. I read every single one and it really helps to spread the word out to other creatives and share the message. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.